Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books. And KPFK. And KPFK, 90.7 on your FM dial. Our topics today include Gunter Grass, who recently died and happened to have been coincidentally a member of the SS. What can we forgive? Can we forgive Gunter Grass that? Do we want to read Gunter Grass anyway? Does it matter that he was a member of the SS? We'll be discussing shame reading. When you read Fifty Shades of Grey on the subway, do you wrap it up or are you loud and proud? And Laurie is going to apologize to the LBGT community. Joining me are my co-hosts, the professor, Tom Lutz. Am I here? And if Tom is the professor, Laurie, does that make you Ginger or Marianne? <laughs> I'm Marianne. And is this a three-hour tour, or does it just feel that way? It's, it's a, a half-hour half tour, and you know it. The German novelist Gunter Grass just died, and we're going to be broadcasting this uh, a week or two after his death, but as Lori Weiner just pointed out, he will still be dead. So what I want to ask... Uh, and, you, and in fact, he is still dead. <laughs> it was a, a great as prediction far as of Lori's we know. Part. What I want to ask is, given that he was in his youth a member of the SS, what are we willing to forgive in an author in order to appreciate him or her. Some authors have done some very execrable things, and what what are we willing to overlook in order to enjoy their work? Laurie? Well, in this particular case, you know, his crime, I think, is more that he kept this fact hidden for so long after he had taken a position as a kind of a moral spokesman for, you know, examining the Nazi past, because he was 17, you know, when he joined the SS, and it was at the very end of the war. And as we all know, in Nazi Germany, you were a Nazi or you were a victim. And a 17-year-old boy, you know, just trying to, I mean, I, I wouldn't judge him that harshly. I mean, wasn't, isn't the Pope a Nazi? I mean, not this Pope, but... Uh, <laughs> a Pope? <laughs> yeah. Can we and get that confirmed? Several Popes. And um, <laughs> it seems to me, I don't really feel that strongly about it, but it seems to me that that People feel that his crime was being secret about what happened. Yeah, I'll take the far end position on this, which is that I don't care. I don't care about Gunter Grass. I don't care about anybody. You know, Robert Frost says the problem with Americans is that they want their authors to be good neighbors. I don't need my authors to be good neighbors. They can be horrible people. It's all about the work. Nothing is unforgivable. Nothing is unforgivable. I don't believe that that's true. If Jeffrey Dahmer was a poet, I don't think you could even read his poetry in an objective manner. Yeah, I can't read Rod McEwen, and he didn't kill anybody. So. <laughs> that's so, <laughs> that's, that's such a different, different thing. It's about, okay, the, work. It's about yeah. the work. We had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about the implied author, and, I'm, and my whole argument there was that we can't read without an author in our head. So we do have an author in our heads. And I have a, like H.L. Mencken. Somebody scolded me for quoting H.L. Mencken, an academic, a few months ago. The quote was, a professor needs to have a theory like a dog needs to have fleas. And I just think it's a funny thing to say, and it's true about professors. We do need theories. And it didn't matter to me that he was kind of a racist and kind of a sexist and kind of a, you know, anti-Semite. And, you know, he, was, he did everything wrong, according to our sense of, of rightness. But it doesn't, I don't care. 
Well, it's interesting as a Jew, for a long time, I've wrestled with this because so many of my favorite authors are, some of them are genteel anti-Semites. I'm thinking of- uh, All of them. <laughs> not all well, of them. I'll get about. to who, who is not genteel. But I'm thinking of, of Scott Fitzgerald, for example, mm-hmm. and in The Great Gatsby, his portrayal of Meyer Wolfsheim, which to me is the fart in the dinner party of The Great Gatsby. <laughs> and you're- you're, you're, you're yeah. You're reading along and reading, and it's, you know, so we beat on boats against the current. (laughs) And there goes Meyer Wolfsheim, you know, and it's a beautiful book, except for that one horrific detail. And of course, in Hemingway, you have the character of Robert Cohn in The Sun Also Rises. In Elliot, you have Burbank with a Baydecker, Bleistein with a cigar, which is a disgustingly anti-Semitic poem. Of course, Elliot is one of my favorite poets. And Laurie, was that an issue for you ever? Whenever I read uh, anyone, Henry James, Edith Wharton, you know, you, you just you brace yourself because you you know it's coming, and and you're reading, and it's beautiful, it's lovely, and it's all about civilization, and it's like, oh, and then she saw in the street the dirty Jew selling ties, uh, you know, it's just there's always comes and. It's just how it, how it was. Well, that's, that's the sociological thing. And then you read somebody like Celine, who, uh, you know, Journey to the End of the Night is, for me, a, a terrific book, actually. But Celine wasn't a genteel anti-Semite. He was an out-and-out Jew hater. And that's a particularly tricky thing mm-hmm. to wrestle with. But going back to Fitzgerald for two seconds, Tom, you were telling me about a, a note that Edith Wharton wrote to Fitzgerald. Yeah, Edith Wharton says, writes a note to Fitzgerald and, and tells him what a beautiful book The Great Gatsby is and how much she loved it, especially, she said, you're perfect Jew. Right. Meaning Wolf- Meyer Wolfsheim, of course. Meyer Wolfsheim, got which is it yeah, just which is, right yeah. with that Jew. So she's clearly got the kind of anti-Semitism of her class mm-hmm. in place um, in full flower. The genteel not, variety. The genteel variety. But when she writes Rosedale in House of Mirth, everybody in the book is feeling it. So you get that pressure and you get that kind of anti-Semitism represented in the book. But you also get the opposite of that. You get why it's wrong for everybody to be making the conclusions about him that, that they're making. She's a great artist. And so it's actually an interesting portrait. And even Wolfsheim, for all of the, the anti-Semitic parts of that portrait, he's an interesting character. And he is not just the stereotype. Is that fair to say? I, I'm not sure that's fair to say, actually. I find Wolfsheim to be grotesque. Um, he is grotesque. But he's also turns out to be like so much uh, more correct about what's going on than anybody else in the book, right? He knows who Gatsby is. He knows what's what. He's not swayed by any of the crap that everybody else is swayed by. He's got an interesting kind of moral center that nobody else in the book seems to manage. And and ultimately, because the book is so great, it doesn't detract from the reading experience for me. I've read that book, you know, 10 times, and I stumble on Wolfsheim every time, but it doesn't make it not a great book. Right. It's not like, I mean, if you look at Breakfast at Tiffany's and that Mickey Rooney, Mickey Rooney does his, but that's a movie. That's a movie. But, but that is just pure racism. There's there's nothing else there. It's a cartoon. It's a gag. It's a gag. And it's horrible. Sure, That's not what Wolfsheim is. He is the fart in the dinner party, as you said, but it's, he's more than that. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the Buster Keaton film, Seven Chances? He has to marry someone by 7 PM that night, or he won't inherit $7 million. So you know, he's courting all these people furiously quickly. And, you know, there's a joke where he sits down next to a, a girl and he looks at her slyly. And then he, he sees she's reading a Hebrew newspaper and he's like, ah, and he jumps and he <laughs> runs away. And then there's another, I think another like a black joke just like that, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, you know, Buster Keaton just seems so beyond, like he seems so poetic and beautiful. And then, you know, it, it, it happens. 
to you. My heart cries out for Phidia. Is there anybody who you're, you've not been able to read because of certain hateful aspects of their behavior? Anybody? Well, uh, Heidegger, uh, not that I would understand Heidegger anyway, but... Um, but it gives you an excuse not to read him now. I, <laughs> yeah, that's different. Yeah. <laughs> I heard he was I, a Nazi. I, I am throwing out this piece of crap that Heidegger wrote. But, but someone who calls himself a philosopher and, and puts on the Nazi uniform and teaches in a Nazi uniform, I mean, no, I don't, I'm not reading him. Yeah, I don't know. It's like people who decide they're going to read David Foster Wallace because it's such a sad story about him committing suicide. And so they, they read him. I mean, to read because of the author's life, I don't get that. Are people reading David Foster Wallace's work because it's a sad story and he committed suicide? Of course. When he committed suicide, his books shot up to the up But that, that is a different thing because anything that leads one to a good writer, and I really like David Foster Wallace, yes, okay. um, you know, is a, is a good thing. What about, was, what about getting led to a good writer who happens to be an anti-Semite? Give an example. I, you know, Gunter Grass, maybe. Was Gunter Grass an anti-Semite? He would say not. Uh, I guess being a Nazi. I well, as Laurie points out, he was a teenage Nazi. So. <laughs> yeah, so. Wasn't a lot of thought that, there. That was a that great, was a, and that Finicello film. Yeah, and a great punk band back yeah. in the L.A. scene, yeah. Uh, but T.S. Eliot, um, when I was in college, I took, you know, a special honors course in T.S. Eliot, and I loved, you know, the four quartets. And I was like, oh, you know, he's, he's the anti-Semite, he's human, he had some pr- flaws. It didn't, it just didn't seem to, in the balance. Well, T.S. Eliot's anti-Semitism is a little more interesting, because I don't think it was exactly the genteel kind. In For Eliot, the Jews were more of a cosmological evil, which in a way is more bizarre than just not liking Jews. Can you say, yeah. explain that a little further? He was a very religious man. He developed a view of looking at the universe through the prism of his religion in which Jews played a role. And this was the traditional role assigned to them in the Christian universe. Uh, the Jews were the devil, essentially, not to put too fine a point on it. You know, Jason Compson in uh, The Sound and the Fury, he's railing against the Jews in New York who are stealing all his money. He's investing the money that he stole from mm-hmm. his own mother. <laughs> and, 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 and he says, you know, I have, I have nothing against the Jews as an individual. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess but, if, the, if the question if the question is should you not read anybody because of their hateful view the answer is of course not read everybody and uh, and talk badly about them talk smack about them after you've read them. Nadie comprende lo que you're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported L.A. Review of Books. My name is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. A few years ago, I was on vacation with my family in uh, the Guatemalan jungle. And uh, my wife and I were staying in one cabin, and the kids were in another cabin, and it was time to go get dinner. And I went to the kids' cabin to tell them. And I opened the door, and my daughter was on the bed reading. And I looked beneath the bed, and I saw a scorpion under the bed, the size of a lobster. It was huge. Oh my God. It, it had arched its back. Oh, my its, God. Its claws were up. And my daughter, one foot above the scorpion, was, was prostrate on the bed with a book in front of her. The book was The Da Vinci Code. I said, Allegra, it's time for dinner. And there's a gigantic scorpion under your bed. And she said, can I finish the chapter? (laughs) 
<laughs> now, my daughter was an English major at Columbia University, and I'm telling brag, this story. Brag, brag, And I'm telling, I'm only telling the story because this ties into the topic. She was not ashamed to be reading the Da Vinci Code. Mm-hmm. But how old was she? I mean, she was she was about seventeen. Okay. Well, so what's the topic? The topic is shame. Should we be ashamed ever of anything that we're reading? With Kindle, this is a less pressing question than it used to be, but and also in New York, it's a much more pressing question because you're reading on the subway and there's an audience. I was always very embarrassed to read anything that I thought was subpar on the subway because I was, you know, pretentious and young, except if the book was so... Well, because sometimes I had so to are read young things. people more pretentious than old people? Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, any old person that's pretentious has no excuse to be pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> It's so what true. Do you think, what do you think, Jerry? Oh, I often had to read things that were really bizarre for work or something, and I, I would be embarrassed, but unless it was so bad that I was almost proud. Like, for instance, when I had to read the novels of Glenn Beck. I mean, oh, I was yeah, very, yeah, yeah, you you know, were, that was just You fun. were showing off yeah. all the time with that, yeah. <laughs> I just like to repeat that phrase, the novels <laughs> of Glenn Beck. <laughs> John Powers, uh, the film critic and one of the great readers uh, that I know, he was saying uh, that it's so funny that everybody's reading Carl Ove Nausgaard, or, or as Laurie calls him, the Norwegian heartthrob, Carl Ove You Nausgaard. always have to say that before you. And, uh, and, and he said the funny thing, of course, is that what now, one of the things that Nausgaard writes about all the time are these, you know, the horrible sheep-like people that just do everything that everybody else does. <laughs> like now, reading Carl <laughs> Ove Nausgaard. Exactly. I do have a, a feeling like if I was going to be embarrassed by something right now on the subway, it would be, that. It would, it would be Elena Ferrante. Oh. I would be like, because oh, you're, I'm so predictable that I would be reading Elena Ferrante because everybody, I mean, it's a little that, late. That is but of course. so overthinking it, though. No, I know. But, I, you know, when I try, when I just did a little self-examination, uh, trying to figure out what I would be embarrassed about, that's what that's it would be. I love that because it's so, it's so specific to you. Yeah. Yeah. Actually. Right. right yeah. Of course. Well, our embarrassments tend to be. Well, say you were, say you were doing <laughs> an academic article about the place of the romance novel in early 21st century literature. Right. Were you reading one of those books on the subway, would you feel you would have to put a brown paper cover on it? No. It's like the Glenn Beck example. If you get to a certain level of text, you're a scholar. And it becomes more like performance art. Or it, 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 it becomes like, I'm, I'm not afraid of this book. Mm-hmm. I watch some TV I'm embarrassed about watching. What do you watch that embarrasses you? I watch um, Burn Notice. In fact... Really? Yeah. I burn like, notice. I like Burn Notice. It's horrible. It's like a, a cut-rate um, oh, version what it is. Of, uh, of Miami Vice. It, hur- it hurts me. Like, if I just hear a sentence of it, it just hurts <laughs> me, and I have to leave. It's it's pretty, pretty horrible. Uh, and I'll, I'll admit that I'm watching some of them for the second time. <laughs> you know, stealing, stealing a joke from Albert Brooks, I will say that I don't have to see it in order to hate it. <laughs> yes. And now, am I really embarrassed, or would I would I be saying it on the radio? If no, I was of course really not. Yeah. yeah. So no, I'm I'm kind of unembarrassable. Well, about we're living we're stuff. living in the uh, the golden age of the high low. I think exactly. So, so if you're not consuming certain amount of low culture things, you're not a contemporary person yeah. these days. And the fact that women are reading, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey on the subway is astounding because nobody reads pornography on the subway, let alone women. Says, says you. <laughs> that I that I know of. Although that's so mainstream now, it's difficult to know exactly how to categorize yeah. it. Somebody once told me they they had bought a copy of my second novel, which has called Shining City, which has a, a somewhat racy cover. And she told me she was embarrassed to be reading it in public because of the cover, and oh. had to had to mask the cover. And I wasn't exactly sure 
how to take that, yeah. actually. Although I like the idea that somebody's embarrassed to She's be She's not a friend me. anymore. It sounds no, a little passive-aggressive, actually. <laughs> Will no one take another point of view other than it's completely acceptable to read anything at all times? I think it is. And I think it's interesting that we're, you know, we're, we're talking about this in part because of the bookends column in the New York Times Sunday book review, in which the question was... Uh, is there anything one should feel ashamed of reading? And Charles McGrath and James Parker debated this, and unfortunately, they didn't really disagree. I was hoping somebody would argue for shame, which I think is always a, uh, a compelling and enjoyable argument for someone to make. Does this look silly? I haven't said a thing. <laughs> For our, for our listeners, I'd like to know that Tom, to avoid popping in the mic, has now put his hat on the microphone and is literally talking to his hat. <laughs> it's not the first time. Um, we are not ashamed of reading anything. We're all high-low people, as you say. We revel, in fact, in some of the lowest stuff that we consume. At the same time, we still ha- make judgments all the time. We still make judgments about people based on what they like and what they don't like. And we make judgments about what's better than something else, right? We, we, don't, we don't get away from the question of evaluation by simply liking everything. No, that's exactly right. So I think as a society, we could say we've made terrific progress in that sense, because we're not embarrassed or ashamed to be consuming anything, really. And we haven't had to forfeit our critical intelligence in order to do it. Right. And that makes for a livelier conversation about the culture. It's a livelier conversation, but you know there are still places where and groups within which taste culture. Lori interviewed Pauline Kael at one point, and one of the things that Kael said was she actually said it on the Dick Cavett show. Is that right? Uh, okay. Dick Cavett was amazed that she had broken up with her boyfriend over West Side Story. She hated West Side Story, the movie. Dick Cavett said, "How could you break up with a boyfriend over a movie?" And she said, "Well, you know, Dick, taste is the great divider." And it still is, right? I mean, it still it still does matter, and it matters to some people more than others. And we have critics that write for us, and this is, for them, the significant part of the critical act, to praise the good and to criticize the bad. For others of us, it's not about, you know, things are good or bad within their own, you know, within what they're trying to accomplish. And I think Burn Notice is absolutely brilliant. At doing what it wants to do. (laughs) My name is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader supported LA Review of Books on 90.7 KPFK FM. Occasionally on the radio or uh, the podcast, one of us might say something that we regret. And uh, occasionally we might even want to say it, uh, we might even want to apologize for saying it. And when we were discussing Fun Home, the adaptation of the Alison Bechdel uh, graphic novel, a couple of shows ago, Lori said something that uh, she'd like to address right now. Well, it was a case of what was happening in my own mind was was somehow, you know, divergent from what was happening in reality. But I was describing the plot, and I, over and over again, I used the term butch to describe the Alison Bechdel character as a grown woman. And, you know, I, I had this idea that they had used the term in the musical, and so that, therefore, it was all right for me to characterize her that way. And... Uh, I didn't realize until later that it would be offensive. And of course, when I realized that, I was um, embarrassed and felt bad. And also, as Tom pointed out, she wasn't really a butch 
Now I'm getting myself back into the It's the best kind of apology. <laughs> yeah. we, should, we should call this segment The Shovel, in which you dig yourself <laughs> even yeah. deeper. Yeah, but uh, I'm sorry I said it. I won't say it again. It brings up an interesting topic, which is who owns the language? Because in the context of Fun Home, one of the characters would be perfectly within their rights to use that term. The way certain ethnic groups use terms to describe their own group, which coming from anybody else would be derogatory, but they take ownership of. For example, sure. the, the so-called queer community. I'm not comfortable saying the word queer, but a huge number of LBGT people uh, are very comfortable with that term, want to mainstream it. Queer studies is uh, a legitimate academic area now, yeah. and we're all supposed to be comfortable saying the word queer. As Tom, you were the, uh, the pandandrum of uh, terminology, so... Uh what nice is a word? Way in. The panjandrum. It's a, uh, an Indian word meaning uh, the big guy. Yeah. Wow. Did, is, that, is that from Susan? Is, is that, that racist? From, not, oh. in, not everything I get that's spiritual <laughs> is from my wife. I really resent the degree to which I'm being patronized. <laughs> oh my God. By now you. I have to right apologize. Right now, Lori Wider. God, I have to apologize for everything. I'm Lori, so... Lori is going to apologize to me right now. <laughs> not, namaste. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Accepted. Tom, as the panjandrum of uh, this area, this topic. I'm interested in the way language, and especially words like this, words that are identity words, get recast. I mean, there was a time, because I studied the 1920s, when Negro was the term that gave dignity. Then there's a moment in which Negro, it does the opposite. Right, and it, it's it's no longer available. And then there was Afro American and African American and African American without a hyphen versus a hyphen. And there were at, at each moment of, in this kind of evolution of use. And when when is black the right word, and when is black the wrong word? In the 1890s, it's racist, and it becomes racist again over the over the course of the next uh, hundred and, and some years. And then it becomes a, again a, a word of pride. It's very interesting when those words change faster than the audience's ability to keep politically correct. It would be nice if we could get an email informing <laughs> us of the correct use of these names. Week by week, yeah. But, but Seth, like, if we were at a dinner party and you or I used the word, say, Jewy, which I sometimes use because I think it's funny, uh, and I feel like I can use it. But we, and if you used it, I, I would laugh. And if I used it, you would, might laugh if what I, the context was funny. But Tom probably couldn't no. use it. And I, I wouldn't think, use it. I, I sometimes do because I I, I I copy the two of you all the time. So I, <laughs> well, we're trendsetters. And then, and then I feel bad. <laughs> well, it's such a tricky thing because Quentin Tarantino, for example, in Pulp Fiction, uh, appeared as an actor. I always love seeing his performances because they're invariably so subtle. <laughs> and and he dropped the N word as if he was using a machine gun. Yeah. And I thought that was fascinating. And he took a lot of grief for it and was completely unapologetic because I think on some level he identifies with, uh, with the black community and he felt that was entirely within his right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's another example of the artist doing something that sure. transcends his own idiocy, right? I mean, because really it's a, it was stupid of him. It, I, it created a character out of his bad performance as somebody who would unconsciously think they had the right to use that word. Oh, absolutely. Even though they didn't. Creatively, I thought it worked great. But to, to bring it back to what the gay community has done with the word queer, why was the LBGT community able to mainstream it to the degree that they did? I think because of that and because they so own it, Lori's comfortable saying what she said in describing the, uh, the Alison Bechdel 
musical. I don't think that they're the only community to do that. I think that I'm Black and I'm Proud was exactly a moment which took Black, which was the epithet as opposed to Negro, right? Can I read a a little thing? This is um, in Ebony in 1967. Lerone Bennett Jr., who was a senior editor at Ebony, wrote about this in a piece called What's in a Name? And he says, you know, there are people arguing that we should should call ourselves Afro-American, Black power advocates, he says, want to use black to describe people who are black and emancipated and Negro to describe black people who are not emancipated. Lerone Bennett himself continues to use the word Negro as as his preferred use. And he quotes Humpty Dumpty saying, a word is what I mean it to be when I say it. And that is, in fact, an important part of community building. You decide what kind of words are the are acceptable and what kind of words are not. This speaks also to the dynamism of language, which is a big topic. And it, I think what we can distill from it for our purposes are these words now that have such cultural uh, import and, and acceptability. We could have, we will, not could, we will evolve right out of them. And in 20, 30 years, the words will be very different. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, I'm Seth Greenland. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org. I'd like to thank our producer, Jerry Gorin. Also the moral center of our show. Absolutely. The generosity of the Goldhirsch Foundation. Have I said find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org? No, go ahead and say that. (laughs) (laughs) And we will see you next week. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Yay!